Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out Swiss and European fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Brad King and we're going to talk about breaking banks. We're going to talk about COVID-19 and the future that's ahead of us and also about the rise of techno-socialism, sci-fi in banking, all kinds of things like that. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Brad. How are you today? I'm great, Rudy. Thanks for having me. It is Friday, so I'm looking forward to the weekend. Even though you know we're in coronavirus and sort of every day molds into one when you're in shutdown, um, I still am very disciplined about trying to not do um, as much work as I do during the week on the weekends. So. Right. I, I heard somewhere that there are only three days in uh, in a shutdown, that it is yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? Absolutely. But uh, I know what you mean. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get to do what you do today? How does that all work? Well, I was born in Melbourne, Australia. Australia. I've lived 20 years offshore, so um, I spent, uh, since 99, I, I, I left um, and went to Hong Kong, then spent six, six and a half years there, then went to Dubai for five years, and I've been in the US for about 10 years. You know, it's, um, my background sort of starts in technology. I'm a technologist, and so mm-hmm. I was a, a programmer, um, you know, in the early days of my career, I started with uh, basic visual basic c plus plus i worked on uh, you know early relational database systems pre uh, pre oracle like ingress and uh, pick and um, um, superbase and things like that so yeah so m- my primary background was was technical but um, over the years uh, developed specialities in the financial services space worked with a lot of banks and credit unions um, by the time I moved to Hong Kong, uh, you know that I was fairly specialized in the in the banking space. knew the knew the retail and commercial banking space pretty well. Good enough to actually teach some elements of uh, banking to bankers over the years. Uh, when because I also ran a training company, I had a training company of my own for a while, which was part of the reason I moved to Dubai. But uh, I, I spent an extended period working with the likes of HSBC. In in the in the noughties, uh, you know, during the um, you know sort of the rise of uh, the internet in banking, I did extensive work on on dot com strategy, on on global internet strategy for a range of big financial service organisations such as Citibank, Amex, Standard Chartered. But I spent ten years in the trenches working with the team at HSBC. That started actually from I, I was teaching an MBA in Hong Kong on e-commerce and one of the HSBC internet banking guys attended my course. And after that, we, we became good friends. His name was Michael Armstrong. He is Michael Armstrong, rather. And uh, we became good mates. And, um, you know, that led to me um, consulting with HSBC for, for over a decade. So that that's sort of where it all started in terms of the banking stuff. In, in 2005, they commissioned me to do a report on the future of banking for them. 
It was one of those budget burner programs that comes at the end of the year when they've got some money <laughs> left over. And uh, that report, you know, sort of became a little famous with it around HSBC, went to the board, we presented in Canary Wharf, all those sort of things. And that eventually turned into my first book, Bank 2.0, which uh, I completed on Christmas Day 2009. was my first book. I'm now, uh, as you've said, working on book number seven, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, but I've done a series on banking. So I did uh, Bank 2.0, Branch Today, Gone Tomorrow, Bank 3.0, Breaking Banks, and then Bank 4.0. But in there also was uh, my attempt at my sort of near-term sci-fi, which was uh, Augmented, Life in the Smart Lane. Which is the book that has done the best in terms of, uh, or did the best in terms of global sales and footprint ended up on the desk of President Xi, which was pretty cool. And, you know, that's led to the writing, led to the creation of Movin, which was the first mobile challenger bank in the world. We now focus on enterprise development. In 2013, I also created Breaking Banks, the podcast. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. You know, I've been uh, last year prior to COVID, I, I was doing on average between 25 and 30 countries a year speaking about the future of banking around the world. So it's been, uh, been a hell of a ride, as they say. Right. So you're a speaker, author, founder, a podcast host, but I also know you're a pilot. So any, anything else? A pilot and a gamer. I scuba dive when I when I get the chance. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm definitely uh, you know I, I love to game, so that's sort of my hobby when I can't get up in the in the air like now. But uh, yeah, good fun. All right, great. So you run an agency representing speakers who speak on the future of digital, fintech, AI, augmented reality, things like that. How do you see the outlook of traditional events this year or next year, and the future of virtual events in the post COVID nineteen world? Is this rise of virtual events just a fad or a function of a lockdown or we will see more of that? People used to, in crisis situations, you know, question the value of in-person events and then they always rebounce back. Do you think that's going to happen again or or not? Yeah, I I think we're very social creatures. I think, um, you know, events will come back. But I think, um, you know, virtual events will, will have more credibility. In, in this space and, um, you know, will be, you know, an emerging competitor that's stronger, a stronger competitor than it was pre-COVID. I, I can even see uh, certain organizations offering options of you can attend the event in VR or virtually or you can attend the event in person. Obviously, you know, um, the, the in-person events, I think, uh, you know, are a better quality of engagement. Um, you don't get to network on virtual events, the way you do with uh, in-person events. Um, so I do think they, they will come back for sure. And, uh, but I do, I do think that increasingly people are, are going to be more open to alternative ideas in respect to how that is, is done. I would love to see us do more on the VR side and things like that. Um, but I, I, I don't think the general public has sort of shifted to VR in this space. I think there's a lot of virtual events. And I think, you know, there's been a scramble to try and just provide content. So it's not necessarily that the virtual events have been, you know, super high quality in all, all cases, but it's about people trying to maintain that flow of content. So I think in, in, 
uh, you know, what we'll see, especially over the next 12 months before we fully, you know, restore, you know, the the, uh, the physical events and so forth. I think probably the second half of 2021 is when we're sort of back to normal in, in, in much of that respect in terms of those events. In the meantime, you know, I think that people are going to be working on the platforms and the quality of uh, their presentation, the way they do, they do virtual events. Um, so I think we've got a way for virtual events to go before they're, they continue to be mainstream post-COVID, but this is, this is allowing the experimentation in that space. Right. I mean, there's some very simple improvements that can be done, right, if you ever had the time. But uh, I think it was a good point that uh, some people just scrambled to keep the content going, right? Correct. Well, you host Breaking Banks, which is the number one fintech radio show and a podcast in the world. Uh, it's syndicated through the radio in the United States. So what are your objectives when you're creating content? Is it to educate? Is it to entertain or a little bit of both or something else? The reason we created the podcast initially was, um, you know, with Movin, we were raising money at the time. And so I I was obviously well in the trenches trying to get Movin uh, and make Movin successful. And so I didn't have the time to do the blogging and the writing that I'd done previously. So the initial thought was the podcast would save me time, right? But then, of course, the fact that we started in 2013, it's seven years on now, yeah, that's part of the reason organically we've grown to become the largest uh, fintech podcast in the world. And the syndication on the radio shows started in uh, 2014, fairly quickly after, you know, we'd started, started. So that gave us obviously a very deep audience. Um, the two aerials or two antennas we use out of New York, for example, WVNJ and WGCH um, on the AM band, give us access to something like 20 million people in terms of the reach on the antenna. But we have uh, generally, we count it as about six and a half million unique listeners annually. So it's pretty, pretty decent. We obviously, you know, we've been going out every week. Um, nonstop for those seven years. So we obviously look to try and provide quality content. We have, you know, extensive programming calls. We look at, we look to get really exciting guests. You know, our seventh anniversary show just recently, we had John McAfee. You know, some of our previous guests include Boris Johnson, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, Peter Diamandis, uh, you know, uh, etc. So we've had some tremendous guests over the years. But ultimately, the podcast is about keeping the finger on the pulse of what's happening in the fintech space and, uh, you know, um, giving people access to the core changes that are happening in banking and financial services generally as a result of the infusion of technology. So that's really the core element of, of where we do. Now, we'll, we'll often do some special shows on AI and tech and certain elements of the tech. We've, I, my favorite shows are when we have the sci-fi guys on. Right. We recently did uh, a show which had uh, Ramez Nam, David Brin, and Kevin J. Anderson on three, you know, very strong sci-fi authors. Their, their perspective is always great. You know, so I do tend towards content that I enjoy, you know, but I've got now other other hosts that work with us on the show that gives it a bit of a different flavor and they have different preferences. So, you know, it gives that sort of um, broader aspect. We're careful not to be too US oriented. Some of the shows we do are US oriented, obviously, because we have a, you know, about 40% of our audience is, is in the United States. So we, we have to have some content that, that specializes toward that. But right. that means we've spun off uh, 
the Breaking Banks Europe show and Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and we're working on a LATAM show as well right now, um, and other podcasts that we've spun off to sort of try and cater for those content needs. So it's definitely content-based, but at the same time, we always try and find guests that people are going to find interesting. Right. So amazing. I, I read an article about where you described yourself as a frustrated sci-fi writer. Yeah. So where do you see the inspiration in sci-fi that is relevant for banking? Is there anything that uh, you saw in sci-fi and has materialized already in the last few years? Well, here's something you might not know. Um, my first book actually wasn't Bank 2.0. My first book was a sci-fi novel called Desert Fire. And it was set, it was a spy versus spy, you know, Earth versus Mars conflict where the Martians were vying for independence and a terrorist, you know, goes to Mars and tries to blow up a, a lab, you know, on Mars using, wow. uh, you know, high tech uh, compound that uh, has been produced. So I, I didn't get it published because I wrote it when I was like 23. So um, I didn't end up getting it published. But, you know, I've always been a big fan of sci fi. But there's, elements of sci-fi obviously that are predictive of where we go and inform technological development so you know the typical examples are things like you know arthur c clark predicting geosynchronous orbit and internet and things like that or you know star trek you know with the 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 communicator turning into the motorola flip phone and you know and all those sort of things where science fiction sort of informs design and so Last year, I had the opportunity to do the closing um, in October, the closing speech with Dave Birch at Inner Tribe, um, you know, Swift's annual conference. And we chose, or part of Swift's uh, Sidebase annual conference, and we chose the theme of what sci-fi tells us about the future of banking and financial services. And what's really interesting is that you know, sci-fi has the gamut, you know, from very dystopian futures to utopian futures, you know, where money continues to be an element of society, where you move to uh, societies without money, you know. So we, we sort of looked at the gamut of those. But ultimately, I think this is where you sort of when you bridge the gap between, you know, far future sci-fi and what's going to happen over the next 50 years, the forces that are sort of coming to bear on this, this is where I sort of talk about the sort of short-term sci-fi angle, is people prior to COVID couldn't have imagined, for example, concepts like universal basic income becoming real, right? Even though it had been talked about, people, many people, particularly in the United States, dismissed it as socialism, which has almost become like, you know, communism was in the in the 70s and 80s in the US, mostly in the 70s with McCarthyism, but they, they dismiss it as just completely unrealistic. But uh, ultimately, I think coronavirus has taught us that we need to be more inclusive, that this far, the greatest problem we have is inequality. If we're to tackle that, we really have to rethink or reform capitalism and how capitalism works because the markets are not incentivized to solve problems like pandemics in advance. You know, they, they can react to them and they haven't reacted particularly well in this respect. You know, they don't incentivize you to produce vaccines, for example, or have extra hospital beds in case there's a pandemic because that's not profitable. And, and the same goes for climate change and, you know, these other things. So if it wasn't COVID-19... In my new book, Rise of Techno-Socialism, I argue if it wasn't COVID-19, it would have been climate change or the rise of automation in society that would have produced a very similar economic effect that we've seen as a result of coronavirus. And so those core problems are, if you like, 
functional uh, inadequacies in the system that we have today. And that's where we need to sort of rethink our future as a species and say, how do we make sure everyone has a roof over their heads, clothing, food in their belly, you know, and adequate healthcare and education? How do we make sure those basic services are ubiquitous to every human on the planet? And then stage two, you know, how do we create innovation that's helpful and healthful for the planet as a primary driver rather than just pure capitalism. Because capitalism, while it has been successful at motivating, you know, economic growth, isn't necessarily the best, in its current form, the best outcome for the entire species. So if we treat this as an exercise of what's best for humanity as a whole, you know, the way the capital markets and capitalism have dominated the way we think about economies and nation states the way they're organized at you know, coronavirus has taught us it hasn't worked effectively let, let me just follow up on what you said earlier that you had a show with uh, very famous sci-fi writers to talk about what can come next right so what were the key takeaways from that angle and then maybe let's talk about the universal income and sure. techno-socialism as well one of the really great quotes from david brin was It's not the job of the sci-fi author to predict the car or the automobile. It's the job of the sci-fi author to predict the traffic jams, which I thought was a really insightful comment, you know, which is that it's these other effects that come from these changes in society where it's really interesting. And so when you think about coronavirus and how it's going to impact us, the effect may be these behavioral changes that last for 30, 40, 50 years as community remembers the trouble and strife that we had as a result of the coronavirus. And so, you know, if you think about just in banking as one example, you know, one of the reasons bank branches dominated um, the way we did banking, you know, through the 20th century is many people remembered institutionally right as a sort of community memory we remembered run on runs on the bank during the depression and so people thought we well, must have branches because if there's a run on the bank again you got to get to the branch to get your money out and so there was this sort of community based psycho- psychology that had hung around since the depression because their grandparents had told them about runs on the bank and you know and so forth that sort of became this sort of institutionalized memory and so you know we we see the same things occur with pandemics in the past um you know you have this nursery rhyme as a kid you learn Ring a ring a roses, the pocket full of poses, you know, a tissue, a tissue, we mm-hmm. all fall down, which even though it's attributed to sort of coming out through the Victorian era is a nursery rhyme about the Black Plague, you know, with the the sort of the round uh, welts that people would get on their body, that they'd uh, sneeze. And even when, uh, you know, uh, you, you sneeze today and people say Gesundheit or they say uh, bless you, you know, again, the, these are, th- this comes from the fact that we were fearful that if you sneeze, you'd die because of the Black Plague, you know. And so this this is from the, the Middle Ages. We still sort of remember this, oh, wow. you know. And so to be a good futurist, you know, you have to be able to look at the past and look at those lessons that humanity's learned through those behavioral shifts. And so um, that was one of the things we focused on on that show with the three sci-fi guys is what are the behavioral shifts that will likely remain permanent? One of them, obviously, is that it will be marked in history that this is the time 
from a trajectory perspective that most people saw digital as an you know and and like digital online shopping and online engagement and so forth as an equal part of human communication and values as physical elements where in the past it's always been this trade-off of well we prefer physical but if it's more efficient to use digital we we will but in in this world we'll you know the out of coming out of coronavirus will be sort of agnostic and so things like buying your groceries online and things like that it's much more likely that coronavirus will just make those things a normal part of life doing that digitally rather than us having this sort of perception about you know being digital being um, somehow a poor copy of a physical engagement, but faster and cheaper, you know, whereas now we'll frame it as just part of society. So that that was sort of one of the key messages. And then again, of course, you know, the institutional changes around the way we travel, the way we, uh, um, you know, have personal contact with each other. There's some evidence to suggest, for example, that the uh, Thai greeting, which they call the Thai Y, uh, sort of the namaste gesture. There's some evidence yeah. to suggest uh, historically that came out of a similar type of pandemic where people didn't want to have physical contact. So instead, they they made this gesture. So we we debated whether the handshake would stick around, for example, or whether that's going to sort of fall out of fashion as a result of coronavirus. So pretty interesting stuff. All right. So... I understand that you have a new book coming out, as you mentioned, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. I think it's going to come out in July, and uh, it should be about the impact of AI on the society, right? Yeah, it's going to be a little d- delayed, um, reason being is we had finished the book um, and then coronavirus hit, and so we've had to rewrite uh you know, um, large portions of the book. So it's probably going to be uh, delayed a couple of months. You know, for example, I did an entire chapter on universal basic income and put basically putting forward a business case for UBI prior to uh, coronavirus. And of course, um, you know, it, it, we, we have so much data to deal with, you know, after coronavirus that, um, you know, completely changed the, the way we put that chapter together. So, um, yeah, but it's definitely coming out second half of the year. And um, yeah, the subtitle of the book is how inequality, AI, and climate change will, will change the future. And so that that's sort of really the coalescing of those forces with changes we're making during coronavirus, which became the theme. But it covers the gamut. It looks at the political environment. It looks at capitalism and economic theory. It looks at socialism. It looks at psychology. It looks of all of, you know, sort of a mashup of all of these things, even uh, Aristotelian philosophy um, about what is humanity's purpose. Uh, You know, it's quite deep in that respect. But ultimately, as you can tell by the title, that as you increase the number of events that are like coronavirus in terms of their impact on society, that the only choice we really have is either become much more divided as a society, unequal, sort of like a feudal system, or if, you know, to become uh, more socially conscious as a species and focused on, you know, how we move the species together uh, as a group. And so um, if essentially as we get higher levels of automation in society, the outcome of that should be that uh, we create you know, just much more inclusive systems because the cost of providing those that basic infrastructure or that basic support for people that 
um, where we used to have to make those decisions or trade-offs because of capitalism become less of an issue. And so, um, and increasingly, um, people are looking for more uh, focused on um, you know the the uh, a more equal uh, future. So we we sort of talk about four possible scenarios mm-hmm. in terms of where society goes, and so these are based on both uh, sort of utopian or dystopian futures, and then ex- exclusionary or inclusionary types of systems. And essentially, you come up with sort of four different scenarios. So they are we give them sort of names in terms of the four quadrants. Um, so the the ladder stand scenario so this is where capitalism has largely failed but no new system emerges a ai science and technology is largely being rejected or and limits on technology being placed into law to keep humans relevant right then you have neo feudalism where you have enclaves of rich living in walled cities massive inequality reinforced through technology ownership wealth capture etc and um, we have faldistan which is where we responded too late to climate collapse and initiated a um, you know hundred year global depression, hundreds of millions displaced, immigration and resource wars. Generally, autocratic rule um, comes into play. Or the best scenario for us is uh, techno socialism, which is a highly automated society, broad quality and prosperity. You know, ubiquitous technology infrastructure which provides for health, education, transport, food, housing, etc. So. You know, we 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 set you know in that um, sort of examination, it's clear that the only real outcome that you would want for society is a techno-socialist outcome if you were designing it. And so that's really the goal of the book is to say, if you look at all of these possible outcomes in the future, the the best outcome is if we have a planned integration of technology into society, but we make sure everyone is looked after um, with a commitment to sort of broad social um, social consciousness. And so that's if you were to design this from scratch and and take a deliberate approach, that's what you would want as an outcome. Uh, the only question as to whether which of those four quadrants we fall into in the future over the next fifty to hundred years, the only um, I, I guess a driver is you know whether we are prepared to do that planning and sit down and make those deliberate decisions, or we just leave it to chaos and chance, right? And so our obvious conclusion in the book is that you know we need to deliberately start designing society for that outcome. Well, great! I'm looking forward to check it out when it comes out later in the year. So. Rise of techno socialism. Let's uh, keep an eye on this. I also wanted to to dig into your role as a founder and a cha- of a challenger bank, Moven, right? And uh, maybe a simple question, but uh, potentially really just diving to the point, right? Which is when you look at the challenger banks or neo banks, you've got a lot of popular ones in Europe. Some of them are trying to expand to to America. What do you see is there? unique selling point or what is your unique selling point today or let's say in early stages right the cherry picking parts of the value chain versus the banks uh, who struggle to onboard clients quickly and as you move forward five years ten years from now will those banks in order to make money also have to do things like lending and other services and can they only do it through sharing with others and keeping their uh, platforms easy and you know, uh, and light, or will they be become bloated like the the original incumbents? Uh, or you know, what's your view on this, and how do you position moving? 
That's a big question, unpacking it. Um, but, you know, moving these days is focused more on enterprise. We, you know, we have found that we've, you know, consistently been able to stay ahead of the market in terms of, you know, function and feature um, in terms of day-to-day banking solutions. Um, but we started uh, way earlier before N26 and Monzo and Starling and, um, you know, Revolut. You know, we, we, we were the first mobile challenger in the world. We started in 2010. August of 2010 was when the domain Move and Bank or Move and Bank was, uh, was registered. Obviously, we became known as Move after a while. There was a couple of reasons for that. One is made life easier for us in a regulated environment, not calling ourselves a bank when we didn't have a banking license. Um, and secondly, because, um, you know, banks uh, coming off the, the last crisis, the global financial crisis, weren't as popular. And so we, we sort of downplayed that to try and access the millennial market. But where we really strongly differentiated was a completely different view of your money, you know, in those days, which was when you opened uh, Movin's app, um, and we were the first um, banking app in the world to offer a bank account sign-up in-app. So, you know, that was one of our first. We were the first to offer a real-time receipt when you did a transaction at a point of sale, um, which included instant categorization of your spending. Right. We were the first to use the home page for something other than a list of bank accounts or products that you had with a bank. Right. Um, so, in, in you know, back in those days in 2010, when you open an app, you would see checking account, savings account, you know, investments, credit card. You know, that was what you would see on the home screen. So we were the first to put something different there, which was uh, we put our spending meter, which showed how much money you'd spent uh, this month and how that compared with your traditional spending. And we used that as a gamification method, sort of like the Fitbit or the Pelotons these days, you know, with, a, with sort of the reward system where, you know, w- you know, we would look, we would turn the app green if you were um, – you know, below your typical spending or it turned red if you're above your typical spending, ultimately with the goal to reduce your spending, which which we show, we've shown consistently that when people use those tools, um, and we've done this in Canada with TD, we've done it in Australia with Westpac, in Indonesia with BCA, in Russia, you know, and elsewhere, of course, here in the United States, where that those tools reduce your average monthly spending from your peer group by about 5 to 8%. So it's a very significant behavioral shift. But all of that was um, a first that Movin um, put in place. No one had done financial health or financial well-being built into your day-to-day banking experience um, like we did. And so now you see N26, Revolut, Monzo have all adopted an artifact similar to Movin's on their homepage. They do categorization as part of that, you know, and they, they've they've built off that. So that behavioral model that we built has become a design template for the rest of uh, the, the challenger world in, in many cases. You know, the the obvious uh, question is, you know, why aren't we the biggest challenger bank in the world given we started so early? And the real problem was we just couldn't get funding, you know, in those early days. We were too early. You know, we were three or four years too early. So, um, you know, we, we, tr- we were, I mean, you know, in 2014, we had a quarter of a million customers on the platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took Monzo and Revolut until like 2017 to sort of hit those numbers, 2016, 2017, to hit those numbers. But in 2014, you know, we could barely raise $5 million, um, you know, to invest in acquiring 
continuing to acquire customers. Because back in 2014 or 2013, when we were trying to raise money, you'd go to the West Coast, um, you know, uh, to you know, guys like uh, Andreessen Horowitz and, and, you know, other big mainstream, um, you know, VCs out there. And they would expect you to have be on path to a billion customers because that's they wanted to see the Facebook of bank. They had no concept of capital adequacy or regulation or anything like that. They were just uh, comparing it with other consumer, you know, models that right. were emerging. On, on social. And so you couldn't get funding because they wanted you to be, well, you know, quarter of a million is not interesting. Come back when you've got 50 million customers. And, uh, you know, I would say to these guys, you do understand that 50 million customers would make us the largest bank in America. And they'd say, exactly, that's what we want. And I'm like, how would how do we do that without funding? Ah, well, that's the trick. You've got to solve that. The other, you know, <laughs> social media companies have already solved that, you know. And so, um, you know, because Facebook didn't have an acquisition cost. Right, um, and so they expected banking to be like that. So obviously, that you know, the three years from that point sort of um, matured that space. In the meantime, though, you know, we had to make a choice, and so essentially, we had banks coming to us, going, "Your your approach to banking is revolutionary. Could we license your tech?" So pragmatically, we went after the revenue. Now that split our attention as a very small company at the time. We had like fifteen staff. You know, it split our attention between, you know, building the Challenger Bank, uh, you know, un, un, underfunded as we already were, and now having to build out our tech to license it to banks around the world. Now, we've since pivoted to that enterprise, um, you know, position because we now have the goal of saying, all right, we want to get this on 100 million handsets. You know, we want to change the lives of tens of millions of people. We can't do that as a challenger bank. You know, a really, really successful challenger bank might have 10 million customers, right? Or 20 million customers. But what we can do is we can get this into bank accounts all around the world and we can change the nature of people's expectation of what a bank account should be for them. Right. You know, and so became a higher goal for us and why we pivoted uh, you know, more fully towards the, uh, uh, the enterprise um, angle instead of direct-to-consumer. But along the way, of course, we were the first, we were the first to provide that. Uh, you know, we first to get a patent on financial wellness. We, we did those numbers of first. We were the first to use contactless technology in banking. You know, we, this was pre-Google Wallet and Apple Pay. You put a sticker on the back of your phone. You know, we really did pioneer this. And you know, we've been able to stay sort of a couple of years ahead of the market generally in respect to sort of that feature functionality play. And right now, for example, you know, we're working on stuff to deploy, which will help people manage their economic recovery personally coming out of coronavirus. So again, I don't know any other bank, challenger or whatever in the world working on that from a, a pure mot motivation standpoint. And so we have that flexibility, I think, where we can sort of stay ahead of the market in respect to those core features about what is, what is a bank account. And how should it work for you? And um, I think, you know, that's where we continue to push the industry forward. And I see that as our ongoing role. Great. Understood. So apart from finishing the book, what's in store for you for the rest of the year or the years after if you have any visibility? Oh, wow. Um, I should know this given I'm a futurist, right? Um, <laughs> Um, well, you know, I, I want to spend some time in um, Thailand. Uh, it's my new adopted home. I've been visiting Thailand for more than 20 years. My father was, uh, 
he was very fond of Thailand. So as a family took us uh, frequently, he ran a travel agency for many years, which was, uh, you know, Thailand was his favorite destination. So I grew up, um, you know, having a real love for the Thai people and, and the country. It's a uh, you know, the economy is uh, growing there very well, full employment. Um, you know, it's obviously got a great travel hub. It's uh, a great city for doing business in. Um, you know, uh, it's got, you know, emerging infrastructure. And, you know, you're an hour, if you're living in Bangkok where we've got an apartment, you know, you, you're an hour from some of the greatest beaches in the world. So I do want to get to Thailand and spend some months sort of de-stressing de, de and detuning from lockdown in New York City for a while, whether that's a couple of months or uh, maybe a little longer, finish off the edits on the book and get that out. Um, so that's the short-term goal. Um, but, uh, you know, I think by the end of the year, from a movement perspective, we want to have some um, new capabilities out in the market. So we're working very hard on that right now. Um, and we're working on, um, you know, we the radio show, uh, ironically, has done extraordinarily well out of coronavirus. A lot of people have come forward and want to sponsor shows and things like that, trying to get their brands in, in you know, staying in, in, staying relevant during the time. So, um, you know, we've got uh, some stuff happening on the radio show that's uh, really interesting as well. Um, I'm also looking forward to getting back on the on the road and doing some more speaking. So I do have a couple of, you know, I've got gigs lined up in in October and, and beyond, um, assuming that um, the recovery, um, you know, is starting to happen then. But uh, if I was to say five years out, hopefully, um, Movens had an exit by that time. We're at the point where we're almost, we're pretty much break even now. So, um, you know, we're not under as much pressure to raise money, but uh, we'll probably do a small raise next year to uh, enable some growth, particularly in the US market where we're we're focused now. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's it. And then I've got to think about what's the next book after Techno Socialism. So great. Thank you very much, Brett. And uh, I mean, my last question is, of course, you're very visible on social media and you have the radio show and the podcast, but where can interested parties reach you and what kind of people would like, would help be most helpful for you on your mission, whether that's the radio show or the bank or, or the book or, or other activities that you have? Well, you know, I think if you just do a search on Brett King, you can find me at brettking.com is my website. I'm on at Brett King at Twitter. You can find me on Facebook, on LinkedIn, you know, all the, all the social platforms. I'm not, I'm not big on Telegram, but um, you know, I'm on WeChat and WhatsApp and those sort of platforms as well. In terms of of what uh, people can do to help me. Um, yeah, look, I get I get uh, tons of uh, messages and requests and emails every day. I'm up to about 1,300 messages per day right now if you can all the social platforms and emails. So I, a lot of density of information. Uh, obviously, because as you said, I'm, I'm an influencer in the space, I get contacted by a lot of people asking me if if I can do stuff for them or help them or you know attend their events and things like that. And I'll just say if you do need, you know do want to reach out and you do want to contact me, be very specific with your ask. You know don't come and just want to have a chat about you know what interests me and what you know and try and find something to do. If you if you come to me with a specific problem or a specific ask, I can help you. If you want to come and you're not sure about what value you could provide and you just want to um, chew the fat, as they say, um, you know, that's less likely because I'm extremely time poor individual with all these companies that I'm running these days. So um, yeah, be very specific. Beyond that, help us get the message out, you know, that the basic bank account 
should be something that's helpful to customers, not a passive thing that just stores value and charges you interest on your credit card. You know, um, and secondly, you know, let's raise our total social consciousness and awareness so that we understand that things like climate change disruption on society is a choice. It's not inevitable. And we can change that future if just we set our mind to it as a species and get to work. Right. Well, great. Thank you very much, Brett, and good luck. Thank you, Rudy. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.